When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. C-13 Originals. The key drafting occurred in Palm Beach, overlooking the Atlantic. John F. Kennedy had won the narrowest of victories in the 1960 election, and he wanted a crisp, memorable inaugural address. Domestic policy was cut along the way. As Kennedy remarked to his speechwriter and counsel, Ted Sorensen, let's drop out the domestic stuff altogether. It's too long anyway. JFK believed brevity was key, noting, I don't want people to think I'm a windbag. They wouldn't. In stately cadences delivered with crisp urgency, his breath white in the winter air, John F. Kennedy summoned a new generation to the hard work of democracy. And in so doing, JFK did something remarkable. He made public service glamorous, fashionable, and central. In your hands, my fellow citizens, more than mine, will rest the final success or failure of our course. Since this country was founded, each generation of Americans has been summoned to give testimony to its national loyalty. The graves of young Americans who answered the call to service surround the globe. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance north and south, east and west, that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind. Will you join in that historic effort? I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Episode 10, John F. Kennedy and the Summons to Service. Let's remember he barely won. He was perceived by many people to be young, to be untested, to be maybe not quite ready for prime time, even after his victory. One of the measures of greatness in a president is not just what bills he signs, but whether or not he or she contribute to the enlargement of America's vision of itself. I remember feeling as if something truly momentous had happened. You know, the idea of a new generation taking over, that these were young Americans who were now, it was their turn, in effect. 
He'd begun his campaign almost exactly a year earlier, on Thursday, January 14, 1960. Senator John Kennedy of Massachusetts, Democrat, throws his hat in the presidential ring at a Washington press conference. Speaking at a luncheon at the National Press Club in downtown Washington, Kennedy laid out his vision of the office he was seeking. He said, The modern presidential campaign covers every issue in and out of the platform from cranberries to creation, but the public is rarely alerted to a candidate's views about the central issue on which all the rest turn. That central issue, and the point of my comments this noon, is not the farm problem or defense or India. It is the presidency itself. The presidency is the most powerful office in the free world. Through its leadership can come a more vital life for all of our people. In it are centered the hopes of the globe around us for freedom and a more secure life. To Kennedy's mind, the Oval Office was the vital center of action, the pivot on which all else, from party politics to foreign policy to culture itself, turned. At the National Press Club, he said, In the decade that lies ahead, in the challenging revolutionary 60s, the American presidency will demand more than ringing manifestos issued from the rear of battle. It will demand that the president place himself in the very thick of the fight, that he care passionately about the fate of the people he leads, that he be willing to serve them at the risk of incurring their momentary displeasure. Senator Kennedy, if you don't win the presidential nomination, will you accept the vice presidency? I shall not on any conditions be a candidate for vice president. If I fail in this endeavor, I shall return and uh, serve uh, in the United States Senate. His understanding of the office was rooted in that of Jackson, Lincoln, and the two Roosevelts, men who considered the presidency to be the overarching element of American life and government. Kennedy said, Whatever the political affiliation of our next president, whatever his views may be on all the issues and problems that rush in upon us, he must above all be the chief executive in every sense of the word. He must be prepared to exercise the fullest powers of his office all that are specified and some that are not. He must master complex problems as well as receive one-page memorandums. He must originate action as well as study groups. He must reopen channels of communication between the world of thought and the seat of power. It was the boldest of job descriptions, and it foreshadowed the style and the substance of the leadership Senator Kennedy would offer when he became President Kennedy 53 weeks later. To him, the life of the mind and the life of the nation were inextricably intertwined. And this connection between the vision of the artist, the poetry of history, and the values of the country was a perennial one in his all-too-brief reign. Our national strength matters, Kennedy said at Amherst College in the tragic autumn of 1963. But the spirit which informs and controls our strength matters just as much. The leadership of the spirit, what Franklin Roosevelt had called moral leadership, was a Kennedy hallmark. He believed politics a noble profession, and he worked within the tradition of the founders, men who understood that politics and culture were of a piece. A republic was only as good as the sum of its parts, which is why public virtue mattered so enormously. 
Algernon Sidney, the 17th century English theorist and politician, once wrote, Machiavelli, discoursing on these matters, finds virtue to be so essentially necessary to the establishment and preservation of liberty that he thinks it impossible for a corrupted people to set up a good government or for a tyranny to be introduced if they be virtuous. I think what he and Ted Sorensen, his principal aide and the person who helped him the most with the speech, what they did first and foremost was they went back to see how others had done it in their inaugural addresses. This is the author and professor of history at Harvard University, Frederick Longeville. They were especially, I think, interested in Lincoln's second. They were interested in Jefferson's first. They also paid attention to Roosevelt's first, and they wanted to see, how should we do this? And I think they took lessons from those speeches. The Gettysburg Address is pretty interesting because I think what they both said was, here is Lincoln in a mere 275 words saying so much. And of course, they couldn't go that short. But they said, let's keep this brief. And in fact, I think the speech is only about 1,350 words, much shorter than most inaugural addresses. The cultivation of civic virtue was a consuming, if little noted, Kennedy undertaking. A practical, hard-headed politician, he nevertheless heard the music of history. His appeals to endure against Soviet tyranny, or to go to the moon, or to join the Peace Corps, were framed in terms of American greatness and of human progress, not in the narrower confines of this legislative session or that midterm election. This is why so many remember him so fondly, even if some might have disagreed with him in real time. He spoke to our better angels, and posterity rewards those who point ahead more than it does those who clench their fist. Such was the essence of his leadership, Kennedy was a young man with an abiding interest in history, the author of two books, Why England Slept, About Appeasement, and Profiles in Courage. He was a man of the urgent present, intrigued by the past. These tributaries were evident in his inaugural address. Let's remember, he barely won. He was perceived by many people to be young, to be untested, to be maybe not quite ready for prime time even after his victory. I think there was a sense in the country that that was the case. And so I think he attached importance to the speech partly for that reason. And he said to Sorensen, we need to alter the perception that people have of me so that I'm not the untested young politician who doesn't really have a full grasp on things. We're going to be confident here. We're going to emphasize that this is a new generation that's coming to power but we're also going to make subtle references to the fact that I have a good deal of experience myself, including in international affairs, given my background. He also understands that an inaugural address can define you as a president, maybe not for the whole presidency, but it can define you for a period of months, maybe even a year or two. And so they spend a lot of time, especially in the week prior to the inaugural going over this thing again and again and again. With Ted Sorensen, Kennedy set to work in the weeks before the ceremonies. As the historian Arthur Slazinger Jr. recalled, morning after morning, puffing a small cigar, a yellow legal side pad of paper on his knees, Kennedy worked away, scribbling a few lines, crossing out others, and then putting the sheets of paper on his already overflowing desk. 
Kennedy's hope was to strike a series of distinctive notes, to express the spirit of the post-war generation in politics, to summon America to new exertions and new initiatives, to summon the world to a new mood beyond the cliches of the Cold War. As time passed, the speech took form. Then one day, the president-elect stuffed the papers in his battered black briefcase and went north into the cold and snow. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the three days before the inaugural, Kennedy read it over, tweaking here and there. The day before the ceremonies, he carried around a large type reading copy in a loose-leaf binder, Sorensen recalled, so that any spare moment could be used to familiarize himself with it. There were a few crucial late edits. The columnist Walter Lippmann recommended that the Soviet Union be referred to as an adversary rather than as an enemy, and, Slazinger noted, adversary expressed Kennedy's intention more precisely, and he employed that for the rest of his life. Members of the House of Representatives were preceded by Kenneth R. Harding, Deputy Sergeant-at-Arms in charge of the mace. This is an indication that it really was cold. I remember that day vividly, actually. It's funny, it was very snowy. It was the worst snowstorm to hit New York in years. This is the professor and historian, Sean Wilentz. It was just short of my 10th birthday. I remember the snow, and I remember waving American flag, and I remember feeling as if something truly momentous had happened. But I think I was aware of uh, you know, the idea of a new generation taking over, You know that these were young Americans who were now, it was their turn, in effect. The day itself was snowy yet bright. The poet Robert Frost was there, He couldn't read the lines he'd composed because of the glare, and so recited an older poem, The Gift, outright. And then Kennedy took center stage. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now 
for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. It's not an ideological speech. Uh, there's nothing really partisan about it. He's not an ideological politician. And I think that's reflected in this speech. It is a summons to idealism. There's a, a strong idealistic center to the speech, no question. And in fact, I think that's where it derives some of its power and a whole generation of Americans. There's a strong idealistic center to the speech. At the same time, I think there is a realism here, especially with respect to foreign policy, and it is heavily foreign policy in its orientation. To those old allies whose cultural and spiritual origins we share, we pledge the loyalty of faithful friends. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, there is little we can do for we dare not meet a powerful challenge at odds and split asunder. To those new states whom we welcome to the ranks of the free, we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom. And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. <laughs> to those people, in the huts and villages of half the globe, struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves. For whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, 
it cannot save the few who are rich. There are really only a handful of words in the entire speech that speak to domestic policy. And those were added really on the last day. It was, it was right at the end that they saw it. Kennedy said, I need to say something here about what's happening here at home. But that foreign policy emphasis, even though it's often perceived as a kind of Cold War call to arms, I think that's actually a misreading of the speech. If you read it in its entirety, I think it's actually quite conciliatory in tone. There's the famous passage, let us never negotiate out of fear. But let us never fear to negotiate. Let both sides explore what problems unite us instead of belaboring those problems which divide us. Let both sides for the first time formulate serious and precise proposals for the inspection and control of arms and bring the absolute power to destroy other nations under the absolute control of all nations. Let both sides seek to invoke the wonders of science instead of its terrors. Together, let us explore the stars conquer the deserts, eradicate disease, tap the ocean depth, and encourage the arts and commerce. Let both sides unite to heed in all corners of the earth the command of Isaiah to undo the heavy burden and let the oppressed go free. So I think in a very powerful way, the speech combines this summons for a new generation of Americans to meet, to conquer real problems, and yet also this realism that undergirds the speech as a whole. In perhaps his most famous formulation, he called on Americans to serve the nation and one another. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, Not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance, north and south, east and west, that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind? Will you join in that historic effort? In the long history of the world, Only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people 
or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. After the parade, Harry Truman called at the White House, the former president's first visit in eight years. Robert Frost came by, too. It was, Arthur Slazinger said, a happy day. The editor of the Liberal Reporter magazine said that he was neither impressed nor stirred by the speech, but he was very much in the minority. The London Times thought it Lincoln-esque. In the New York Times, James Reston wrote, The reaction to President Kennedy's inaugural speech was even more remarkable than the speech itself. Everybody praised it. Kennedy's own view was that it wasn't as good as Jefferson's first. Ted Sorensen later wrote that the JFK effort didn't outrank Lincoln's second or FDR's first. Perhaps. But it remains the most celebrated and quoted inaugural, with the possible exception of Lincoln's and FDR's. And the people liked it. Before the inauguration, nearly 70% approved of JFK. After the inaugural, by spring, his numbers hit 83%. I think John Kennedy's inaugural inspired a whole generation of people to want to commit to public service and to want to look for a way to make a difference. This is the longtime political consultant and speechwriter, Robert Shrum. I was a senior in high school watching it on television. It took your breath away. Uh, you could not believe that somebody could bring that much eloquence. And it wasn't just eloquence. It was also what he was saying and the call on people to give of themselves. So it lives on in the way that I think Roosevelt's first inaugural lives on or Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and second inaugural live on. It's just a very powerful call, distillation of what America is all about. I have this theory that one of the measures of greatness in a president is not just what he does, not just what bills he signs, but whether or not he or she contribute to the enlargement of America's vision of itself so that Americans think about themselves differently and at deeper levels after they hear a president give that kind of speech. And I think that's one of the reasons also that John F. Kennedy, even though he was president for just over a thousand days, endures as a presence in our lives. A nation, Kennedy remarked elsewhere, reveals itself not only by the men it produces, but also by the men it honors, the men it remembers. At Amherst College in 1963, he spoke of Robert Frost, who shared the inaugural podium with him. Frost, Kennedy said, 
brought an unsparing instinct for reality to bear on the platitudes and pieties of society. His sense of the human tragedy fortified him against self-deception and easy consolation. I have been, he wrote, one acquainted with the night. And because he knew the midnight as well as the high noon, because he understood the ordeal as well as the triumph of the human spirit, he gave his age strength with which to overcome despair. And the same could and should be said of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. In his National Press Club speech in the first weeks of 1960, Kennedy had invoked Lincoln. The presidency, JFK said, must be endowed with extraordinary strength and vision. We must act in the image of Abraham Lincoln summoning his wartime cabinet to a meeting on the Emancipation Proclamation. That cabinet had been carefully chosen to please and reflect many elements in the country. But I have gathered you here together, Lincoln said, to hear what I have written down. I do not wish your advice about the main matter. That I have determined for myself. A bit later, Lincoln was ready to sign the proclamation, Kennedy recalled, but only after several hours of exhausting handshaking had left his arm weak. Lincoln remarked, If my name goes down in history, it will be for this act. My whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign this proclamation, all who examine the document hereafter will say, he hesitated. Kennedy told the rest of the story. But Lincoln's hand did not tremble. He did not hesitate. He did not equivocate. For he was the President of the United States. Kennedy's voice never trembled either. That's one reason we hear it still. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Thank you for listening to Season 1 of It Was Said, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13 in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, produced, engineered, and mastered by Chris Basil, with production support and research by Bill Schultz and John McDermott, and research assistance by Ian Mott. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz. Graphic design, marketing, and publicity by Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. 
Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. And our closing credit song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far. Young and dark will always be one of their own to They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.